Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. The spring, the summer, the childing autumn, angry winter change their wanted liveries, and the mazed world by their increase now knows not which is which. And this same progeny of evils comes from our debate, from our dissension. We are their parents and original. That's Titania, Queen of the Fairies, in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, in what has become known to some as the climate change speech. For our third episode on the forests of the Western imagination, I'm excited to share with you my conversation about this play with Shakespearean and eco-critic Randall Martin. He's the author of Shakespeare and Ecology. Though it may seem surprising to associate Shakespeare with our current ecological and environmental concerns, Randall Martin shows us that this isn't as much of a stretch as you might think. It turns out that many of the environmental issues that challenge us today were already part of the conversation in Shakespeare's time. The origins of climate change, for example, may be traced in part to the shift to fossil fuel that began in Shakespeare's England, and there are echoes of these concerns in Shakespeare's plays. The Forest of a Midsummer Night's Dream is one of the iconic forests of Western culture, inhabited by fairies and bedecked with the native flowers of the English countryside even though the play is officially set in Athens. The play opens with preparations for a wedding, of somewhat questionable origin. Theseus, the Duke of Athens, is to marry Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons, whom he has wooed with his sword. In other words, she's a captured bride. Other marriage problems ensue. Aegeus, a nobleman of the court, comes to ask Theseus to impose the Athenian law on his daughter Hermia, who refuses to marry the man of her father's choosing, Demetrius, because she is already in love with another young nobleman, Lysander. Theseus warns Hermia that if she doesn't marry Demetrius, she faces either death or life in a convent. And this is the catalyst that leads four young Athenians into the woods. Hermia and Lysander to run away and elope, Demetrius in pursuit of Hermia, with whom he is in love, as well as Helena, the besotted and spurned ex-girlfriend of Demetrius. Meanwhile, a group of working-class Athenians who are preparing a play for the wedding festivities of Theseus and Hippolyta also go into the woods to rehearse. In the forest, these various characters encounter the fairies who are dealing with their own conflict, a dispute between the king and queen of the fairies, Oberon and Titania, over the fate of an adopted Indian boy whom Titania has claimed. To get his revenge, Oberon dispatches Robin Goodfellow, otherwise known as Puck, ordering him to use the juice of a native violet as a love potion on Titania and on a young Athenian. Oberon means Demetrius, whom he wants to fall in love with Helena, but predictably Puck gets it wrong and places the potion on Lysander instead. Things go awry, lovers quarrel in the forest at night, and Titania falls in love with Bottom the Weaver one of the players, who has acquired the head of a donkey. By the end of the play, order is restored, more or less. Theseus, who has entered the woods to go hunting, relaxes the rules, and we conclude with a triple wedding. Hermia and Lysander, Demetrius and Helena, and Theseus and Hippolyta. The amateur actors, also known as the Mechanicals, perform the play of Pyramus and Thisbe for the noblemen, truly one of the most delightful scenes in all of Shakespeare and the fairies give their blessing to the couples. 
Well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me. I've been really looking forward to this. Not at all. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It was a, a pleasure to rediscover Shakespeare. I, I read a lot of Shakespeare back when I was in college. You know, occasionally would see a performance, but I hadn't gone back and read a play in a long time. Mm-hmm. I was pleased to see that it gave me as much pleasure as ever. Oh, good. (laughs) As as I jokingly said to my husband, Shakespeare lives up to the hype. (laughs) (laughs) He does. I reread the play yesterday for the umpteenth time. Right. (laughs) And I was still getting new things out of it because the wonderful thing about Shakespeare is he has this fantastic ability to mirror back at us our you know, most recent ideas and concerns and emotions. He's just infinitely giving mm-hmm. uh, Shakespeare. You know, you read Shakespeare and you always find new things. You know, it's really the wrong metaphor because right. uh, they're not really in Shakespeare. They're what we bring to Shakespeare. But Shakespeare's poetry is so rich and there's so many different points of view in Shakespeare. It's so layered. It's so complex that when you bring a new point of view for a new reading of rereading of the play, you, you find something new and something fresh. I watched a couple of productions to get ready for our interview, and I watched a recent BBC film version. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of it is a little over the top, but what I actually enjoyed the most was the phrasing. The actress who plays Helena mm-hmm. has a way of delivering those lines that feels very contemporary, like the kind of gestures that my 10-year-old daughter would make. And it completely <laughs> works, yeah. um, I thought was terrific. Yeah, the verse particularly, Shakespeare, I mean, this is a whole other different podcast we'd have to do. <laughs> but Shakespeare, of course, because he is absolutely a supreme poet, as well as a dramatist, you know, he writes this, this hybrid, uh, a form, dramatic verse, and so embedded in his verse, technically, one might say, are all kinds of different clues as to how not only to speak the line correctly, but also for characterization, insights into character, mood, emotion, that sort of thing. And if you dig a bit and actors do this, good actors do this, um, they get to grips with the verse, they realize how it's working, and they realize Shakespeare is constantly giving actors clues as to characterization from the verse. Mm. Um, And that's another way in which it's just, in other words, he doesn't give them stage directions like George Bernard Shaw, which are half a page in length, saying, you do this and you (laughs) do that. Um, Shakespeare just leaves it open. But there are insights in his dramatic verse, um, yeah, yeah. particularly when he's writing uh, a play as rich and profound as uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which on the one hand looks like just a kid's fairy story. You know? <laughs> right. No, no, it can, it can go light or it can go dark, depending Absolutely. on which way you want to go with it. That's so it. Before, before we start talking about Midsummer Night's Dream, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the actual force of Shakespeare's time. Yes. Um, so what do you know about, you know, how people thought about the forest, what, mm. how, how wooded things were or weren't? I'll just leave it open-ended. <laughs> okay. um, well, the first thing, perhaps the first distinction to say is that the forest of A Midsummer Night's Dream is largely an imaginary forest. So it's a forest, forest of the imagination, a forest of a whole literary uh, tradition in Western European literature. 
the forest as potentially a uh, threatening space, a dark space, a mysterious space. And that would have been more immediate for Shakespeare's uh, audience because mm, so much more of uh, England and Britain at the time was forested. It was in certain places in Shakespeare's time being rapidly deforested by new industries that were coming up. And there was a whole discourse or conversation happening in Shakespeare's time about deforestation. So that's one of the ways in which Shakespeare, as a person who lived in the early modern period, is beginning to reflect awareness, ecological awareness, that we now share and and have expanded upon. Um, but the forests, uh, as I said, the forest of A Midsummer Night's Dream is largely imaginary. There are other plays of Shakespeare that represent more real forests in, in Shakespeare's day. Plays like The Merry Wives of Windsor, which is set in Windsor, which is a royal forest. And uh, we can talk about that a little bit because a royal forest was a legal entity um, under the protection of the crown, of the king. And it had its own laws, it had its own jurisdictions, and essentially a royal forest, a crown forest, crown land, it functioned in two ways. It was, first of all, a largely a hunting reserve and a resource reserve for the crown and the king and the government in, in Shakespeare's day. So the timber, the animals, the wood, all of those things, and the other resources there too, mineral resources, they were all owned by the crown or the government, and they could be exploited. And those lands were set apart from common law jurisdictions and private property. So here we have a sort of division between public, we might say, and private public being the the crown, but it wasn't really public, but you could lease things from the crown. So those were royal forests, crown land. And they also functioned, not only were they resources for the king, the government, but they also functioned kind of as sanctuaries, as asylums for animals, because they were protected areas. So royal forests were also sort of conservationist in ethos. I mean, it was a conservationist ethos, not for the animals themselves, of course, and because all of this was owned by the crown and could be used and was exploited and degraded, in fact, by the crown. Environmental historians have tracked how the woodlands of England, the crown woodlands of England and royal forests of England were gradually degraded during the uh, Middle Ages and into the early modern period. So when Shakespeare is talking about a forest, he's talking about strictly speaking a royal forest one of these one of these jurisdictions with its own laws governed by the king functioning as both kind of a conservation area one might say a sanctuary and a personal hunting and woodland reserve for the crown and then there were woods and woodland and that signified when shakespeare used that term he meant things that were more open to the public or that could be uh, privatized, that could be bought by private owners. So I'm reducing a little bit here, and there are all kinds of variations within that. But those those are what he thought about uh, when he talked about uh, forests and woodland. So The Merry Wives of Windsor is set in a real forest. 
when Shakespeare in As You Like It sets his play in the forest of Arden. That was the forest that was, and the woodland that was very close, right near Stratford-upon-Avon, which Shakespeare grew up in. That was the forest and the woodland that Shakespeare knew best. Strangely enough, Arden was no longer a royal forest. It was one of those crown lands that had been kind of so sold off by the crown to different private interests and owners, degraded that sort of thing. It had kind of lost its royal status. So it was no longer this protected and privileged area, but it had that legacy behind it. And the other thing about Arden, and as you like it, is that it's a real forest insofar as it's not just trees, it's not just woodland. Forests were, in fact, very mixed mosaic places. They contained pasture, they contained arable land, they contained timberland, but they were mixed areas. When we think of a forest, we tend to think, you know, national park kind of place, which is all treed and wooded area. But uh, forests and and woodlands generally in Shakespeare's time were more uh, mixed sites. And that's what we get in As You Like It. Mm-hmm. So would these would the Forest of Arden, for instance, been uh, open to the public? Would would anyone be allowed passage through it? Yes, although most of it was owned. The public did have customary rights, immemorial rights to go through that woodland, but most of it was seigneurial. It was owned by great landowners, you know, and this is a holdover from the Middle Ages when you know the top people in society, owned most of the land. Uh, The land was basically divided between three different entities. It was owned by the crown, it was owned by the church, and it was owned by private landowners, the lords of the land, as it were, landlords. What happened significantly to woodlands in the 16th century was Henry VIII's revolution, when he broke from the Roman Catholic Church, and he confiscated church property and especially monastery properties. And these were vast holdings, vast, vast medieval holdings in England. And basically, he created the first land market in Europe because he sold off this land to his friends and to other private people. So suddenly there was, because before that, in the Middle Ages, you couldn't really buy and sell land. And the only way you could acquire land was really through marriage, Or if the king decided, if you did him a favor, and he decided to uh, give you a piece of his crown land. But Henry VIII created land as a commodity for the first time. You could buy and sell it from all of this former monastery land that was now up for grabs. Of course, Henry gave it away to a lot of private owners, but then it would, you know, change hands. And there was a there was now a market. England was the first country to uh, to really create this, and that commodification of the land, including forests, of course, had far-reaching consequences because suddenly landlords and owners started treating the land as an exploitable resource and uh, to maximize their profit from the land. And this went against the medieval idea that the land was God's treasury, that it was common, even though it might be privately owned, that that commoners, feudal tenants, that sort of thing, had uh, rights to minor uses of the land, even if it was, strictly speaking, privately owned. They could go in, they could, you know, 
hunt a few rabbits. They could collect some wood for their fires, some, you know, stray wood on the ground, that sort of thing. They couldn't cut trees, but there's other ways in which they could use that woodland. They had common law rights to it. That began to shift in um, Shakespeare's period. And As You Like It in particular is a play that tracks that shift in land uses. The Mary Wise Windsor does to uh, some extent as well. So that's a little that's a little background. It's actually relatively complicated. <laughs> but yes. it was also the main point is that these things were shifting in Shakespeare's time and they were the product of both cultural and economic forces including early modern capitalism. And Shakespeare as he's an author of course who sits between the Middle Ages traditional knowledge and the beginning of the modern period when these shifts that we're now all familiar with begin to happen. And he sits in the middle and he realizes things are changing and he captures these changes in his plays. And I, I would imagine that the commodification of land was part of what led to the deforestation of certain areas. Wood was in high demand in this period and was used for all kinds of building purposes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's absolutely right. Woodland was being in certain areas, not all of England or Britain, but in certain areas where there was greater population. Because in the 16th century, the population, let's just talk about England, was beginning to come back. And that was after that was after the Black Death in the 14th and 15th centuries, which reduced England's population by, you know, about a third or something like that. And then finally, in the 16th century, the population began to come back. Well, that population needed new housing. They needed new fuel to heat their houses for cookery, all those domestic uses. So there was pressure on woodlands from demographics, one might say. There was also pressure on forests from new industries. And the two that were particularly wood intensive in terms of consumption were the iron industry and the iron industry, particularly in the making of weaponry, of cannons and guns. So this is, a, this is an industry that at the beginning of the 16th century didn't exist in England virtually or in only in a minor cottage-like way, small, you know, very small producers. And Henry VIII, again, he was the one that said because he broke from the continent and he was very keen on England becoming self-sufficient and, and nationally sovereign, he said, we're going to create a new industry. And he supported the development of the English iron industry and the English cannon-making industry. And he first set this up in, uh, in Sussex near the Weald Forest, and then it grew from there. And iron-making requires huge, huge amounts of wood to fire the furnaces. And so almost right from the very beginning, there were complaints by local residents that their woodlands were being deforested. And this grew. And the other main industry that used vast amounts of wood was the glassmaking industry. This was another industry that didn't exist at the beginning, virtually didn't exist at the beginning of the 16th century in England. Almost all of English glass was imported. Henry VIII, again, wanted to make all of his industries national and self-sufficient, and he encouraged these. And glassmaking, again, for the furnaces, requires a lot of wood. It also was an opportunity for forest-owning landlords because they could lease out some of their property to glassmakers 
who could move around. There's not much infrastructure that's really required for glassmaking. And they would move around and they would exploit woods owned by local owners. And when they had <laughs> used up enough there or, or used the, uh, the amount set in their, in their lease, they would move on. And we have an example of, you know, uh, something that indicates this again in the Merry Wives of Windsor. There's a saw pit in the Merry Wives of Windsor, a very functional kind of thing to introduce into a play that is, you know, a very jolly comedy, really. And that saw pit in Windsor Forest was an indication of how the Crown was leasing some of its lands to local, probably glassmakers, but it could be other kinds of industrial uses too. Economists call this period of the, you know, the second half of the 16th century to the going into the 17th century, they call it England's first industrial revolution. When these industries began to get going, of course, not on the scale that they became in the 18th and 19th centuries with, you know, sort of factory levels of production, but they began to get going in ways that were significant. And uh, one way of indicating that significance or tracking it in this period is that in 1608, King James and the government required all glassmakers to switch to coal from wood burning because this whole conversation had developed about deforestation in England. And there were other pressures, of course. Henry VIII was very keen on building up his navy and the navy needed ships and all these demands in the woodlands. So uh, that was an indication, that 1608 legislation. There wasn't really anything else as far as we can tell. It was really conservationist in, um, in principle. But that was a recognition that the forests of England were limited, really limited, and in some places were running out of trees, and that one had to not just assume that the resource would always be there, but one had to look to the future, to a longer-term uh, conservation and even reforestation or replanting program. And that was proposed again in, in the Jacobean period in King James's reign. Not much came of it. But again, these are all ways in which ecology, ecological-mindedness, was beginning to enter the contemporary consciousness. And Shakespeare is aware of these changes. He's aware of that developing consciousness, the way it comes out in small details. None of his, none of his storylines capture this. They're in the kind of contexts, one almost say the background, of his plays, as well as the metaphors and the imagery. But Shakespeare's aware of this and begins to capture it. So there's a sense in which Shakespeare's plays, by capturing that, uh, this is what I argue in my book, right. is beginning to dramatize an ecological, environmental consciousness in the period, the beginnings of it, because of these different stresses of what we might just call with an umbrella term, modernity. It's fascinating. I think it's particularly engaging to us as we contemplate all of the environmental challenges that we're facing today. So, for instance, the word deforestation, I think, to most people would immediately conjure up the Amazon, mm -hmm. which for some of us is, you know, relatively far off. But to think about that having happened in this early modern period on a smaller scale but with some of the same conversations in a way and the same reflections, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Well, yes. I, I could, I could ask you lots more questions about that, but in the interest of time, <laughs> perhaps yes. we should talk about the play and then, you know, we'll see if we'll have time to come back or if we find ways of, of connecting it. 
so we have two settings in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Athens and the woods. So before we talk about the woods themselves, I was wondering if we could talk about that contrast, the sense in which the woods is a foil for Athens. So maybe it would help to talk about the first person who refers to the woods is Lysander. Once Hermia finds herself in this predicament where she's facing the possibility of, of death or being sent to a convent if she doesn't marry the fellow that her father has picked out for her, Lysander proposes escaping to the woods. And he says, and in the wood, a league without the town where I did meet thee once with Helena, etc." And he, he hatches the plot. And a little later, he talks about going through Athens gate to get to the woods. So you have this sense of a physical boundary that separates the two. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about how these two function in relationship to each other, how they are sort of foils of each other and how the woods is in some sense defined, if, if you agree with this, in relationship to, to the city. Yes, I think that's a good way. The use of the word foil, your use of the word foil is a good way of putting it. It represents, in some ways, the antithesis of the city, the woods and the city. Or we might think of it as being civilization and culture and nature and wildness and those two different, very fundamental oppositions in Western culture. Uh, Lysander thinks of the woods. Uh, we talked a little bit about royal forests as being a kind of sanctuary. They were, because they were under a completely separate jurisdiction from the common and criminal law. So there's a way in which he thinks of going into the forest as a way of getting away from the arm of Theseus's law. Now that's a bit uh, that's a bit fudged in this play because they don't get very far into the <laughs> into wherever they're going into the forest. Uh, first of all, they're going to see this uh, widow aunt who lives, I think it is uh, nine leagues in or seven leagues into the uh, to the forest. Uh, in other words, about 21 miles, quite far into the forest. They never get that far. They only get maybe a few leagues into the forest. And that means they're in what the play suggests is this is still a forest owned by Theseus. This is still his royal forest. They talk about at one point the palace woods. So they're trying to get away from Theseus and his oppressive law, which he's uh, backing up Aegeus to impose his fatherly patriarchal will on Hermia. They don't get very far away from that, but it's far enough to have a sense that they're entering a different kind of space. And to put it in dramatic terms, the forest is the space of comedy or comedic transformation. Because it's the place where laws and restrictions and cultural ideas that have been dominant in the court get shaken up. They get challenged. They get dissolved. And this is part of a, a pattern in Shakespeare that scholars have noted, uh, especially in some of his comedies. There's a kind of threefold movement from a comedy like A Midsummer Night's Dream from the court or the city. And then the action moves into the forest, as you noted, which we're talking about as a foil, as an alternative space and an alternative worldview. And so they go from this, they go from the court, which is sterile, barren, oppressive to women in this case, and they enter this green world, 
one of Shakespeare's green worlds. And Shakespeare, there are other plays that have this kind of movement. As You Like It is another play, The Winter's Tale, Cymbeline. So they enter this green world where those restrictions that have been on them are loosened. Their desires, their natural desires, in this case, Lysander for Hermia, become closer to fulfillment. And with the help of the fairies, the natural desires are turned into something that are seen as being legitimate, that they are supported, they are backed. And they move finally in the third part of the uh, movement, the action moves back to the court or the city, which is regenerated by the comedic loosening or dissolution of conventional categories and boundaries and restrictions that the play started out with. And we've got at the very end of the play, we get to the happy ending. So the forest is the pathway to the happy ending. That's to put it in kind of dramatic genre terms. And I've also been talking a little bit about individual identity terms too, in terms of individual characters. Hermia and Lysander's desires are thwarted at the beginning. And so to fulfill those desires, they go into the forest. They find that their desires are loosened and they seem to be getting closer to being fulfilled, but they're also discombobulated as well because Shakespeare adds Helen into the mix, who has been dumped in the past by uh, Demetrius. And so now we've got this set of competing triangles, one might say, a very typical Shakespeare thing to do. He started off in his very first play, To Gentlemen of Verona, with the same kind of plot complication. And we move then through the forest, through this one night at uh, midsummer at the summer solstice, back to the court where Theseus, for reasons that are not really explained, but he's been in the forest that evening to observe what he calls, uh, very strangely, the rites of May, even though we're supposed to be talking about midsummer, uh, June 21st. But he's somehow been transformed by the forest as well. And he drops the Athenian law, the patriarchal law, and he allows the men and women to form their natural couplings, one might say. So if we think of Athens as representing civilization and the forest as nature, just to simplify a little bit, mm-hmm. there's a sense in which they're foil to each other, but civilization is sort of regenerated, made, yes. made whole, made functional again by yes. virtue of, of this passage through the natural world. Mm-hmm. It's reformed. Yeah. Yeah. And regenerated. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have... Lysander, who goes into the wood with Hermia, then we have Helena and Demetrius who follow, and then we have the mechanicals. Is that still the way that one refers to them traditionally? Yes, they're they're laborers. Right. Um, we would more call them. They're tradesmen, but they are traditionally still called mechanicals. In other words, they are like our st- we still use the word mechanic in a very specialized way for someone who works on cars, <laughs> uh, but they work with their hands. That was the big dividing line socially, economically in early modern England. You are either people who worked with your hands, in other words, 90% of the population, or you were the 10% of the population who were gentry or uh, nobility, and they didn't work with their hands. They uh, lived off the labor of other people. Mm -hmm. Convenient. (laughs) That was the aristocratic idea. (laughs) So the mechanics decide also to go into the wood to rehearse the play that they're going to perform for the marriage of Theseus and Hippolyta. 
Yes. They meet me in the palace wood a mile without the town by moonlight. So curiously, they, they're rehearsing at night. And the reason that they give is that they won't be bothered. They won't be, you know, overheard there. And of course, it's convenient for the play as well, because then we have them in the wood for the fairies to make mischief with. Yeah. So what can we say about the actress choosing the wood as a place to rehearse? Do you think that that's significant in some way? Or do you think it's just a plot device that suits Shakespeare? <laughs> I, th- I, I think it's largely a, a, a plot device. They want to keep their theatre production of Pyramus and Thisbe under wraps for a while. So I think they want to be out of the public gaze. Mm-hmm. And of course, they don't easily have a rehearsal space in the city you know, because they're mechanicals. They need a, they need a space that is uh, out of the public eye. They want to keep it under wraps and they want to have it as a kind of surprise to present to the uh, eventual marriage of Theseus and Apollo. Mm-hmm. But plot device okay. largely. So it's the Athenians who lead us into the wood. But then when we actually arrive, we're not following them. We're introduced immediately to the fairies, and the tone changes, the language changes, the type of verse changes. Over hill, over dale, through bush, through briar, over park, over pale, through flood, through fire, I do wander everywhere swifter than the moon's sphere, and I serve the fairy queen to do her orbs upon the green. What do we make of this shift? How does the how does Shakespeare use the fairies and the fairies language to indicate that we're in a different space? He uses the fairies language largely descriptively, first mm. of all, uh, to set the scene, as it were. A Midsummer Night's Dream can be performed in broad daylight anywhere in any time because it evokes the woodland at night in the moonshine so beautifully in its verse. And this is, of course, the extraordinary power of Shakespeare's poetic imagination and his poetic craft. This play was written around 1595. And just in a period, Shakespeare was writing intensely lyrical poetry, both in his plays and in his sonnets and his non-dramatic poetry that had come immediately before, just a couple of years before A Midsummer Night's Dream, he wrote his non-dramatic poems, Venus and Adonis and The Rape of Lucreus, which were his first literary successes, where he was recognized publicly as a poet, a poet of extraordinary gifts and talent. And that success followed him into these plays in the mid-1590s. They also include Romeo and Juliet, which is very close to um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, because the Pyramus and Thisbe story is kind of a bit of a burlesque of the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. And we also have plays like Love's Labor's Lost, another play that moves from the court into, not woods, but a park, a woodland park, and then back. And then uh, also Richard II, which is a, a play written entirely in verse and extraordinarily poetically powerful. So Shakespeare, uh, first of all, sets the scene, we might say, to put it uh, very simply. And we get those opening speeches, especially by Robin Goodfellow, otherwise known as Puck describing the woodlands, describing the atmosphere. And I would also underline that these are not just, we can call them atmosphere, backdrop, setting the scene. But what Shakespeare makes immediately apparent is the fairies have an intimate, not only knowledge of the space, but relationship with it. And they transfer that relationship to the humans who have wandered into the forest. 
because the fairies represent a bridge, as it were, between the entities of the forest and the life of the forest and the wilderness, we might say, of nature and human culture and civilization. And the fairies bridge that conventional opposition. So uh, so the uh, the opening scenes in Act 2, Scene 1, Act 2, Scene 2, establish that space. And particularly, now it's become a bit famous, Titania makes what is now known as the climate change speech. Ah. She has that speech. She's facing off against Oberon, and they're squabbling. And the conceit of the speech is that their squabbling has caused all of these atmospheric disturbances, which have resulted in storms and the seasons being mixed up and and huge uh, temperature volatility. And this has killed animals and ravaged crops. And what Shakespeare has in mind here, we now know historically, is the fact that this period of 1594 to 96 was a terrible, terrible few years for English agriculture. England at the time was living through what we now know as the Little Ice Age, when the atmosphere in the Northern Hemisphere cooled temporarily, and particularly across Northern Europe. And it introduced tremendous, tremendous climate volatility. So in a larger sense, what they're tracing here is that contemporary climate change. Shakespeare's working it into his play. And it's also suggesting the power of Titania and Oberon as fairies. I mean, what happens between them has physical effects on the earth and in the forest. And that includes the non-human creatures as well as human creatures who are in the forest at this time. It's a very potent nature, and and the yes. fairies are part mm-hmm. of that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the fairies, to give them a little bit of context, in Shakespeare's time, of course, there were still people who believed in fairies, just like uh, ghosts, just like other kinds of creatures of a, you know, a half-human, half-divine life or spiritual life, one might say. This was becoming residual in Shakespeare's time, dismissed as superstitions, that sort of thing. But this was traditional folklore and was still very much part, a strong part of early modern culture, uh, whether it was believed or not, traditional folklore and, and fairy stories. And what the fairies have subsequently become, uh, because that world has become disenchanted, we no longer, because of the mechanistic views of nature that entered the modern world in the 17th and 18th centuries, nature became just a series of mechanisms. It lost its sense of being alive and independent and having uh, that kind of independent life and life force and very much possibly under human control and management. And that, of course, has led us to the current environmental crises that we're now living in because humans have come to dominate nature over the entire planet. And that we now call the Anthropocene, that sense that we're now, we, we've now become the dominant life force on the planet and have reshaped it in ways that are almost entirely negative and now threaten our very existence. So in that sense, the fairies now have become metaphors. They've become metaphors for different kinds of ideas and human relations with nature, with animals, plants, other kinds of entities. And that means we've kind of gone back to as well a sense that the fairies represent stand-ins for ecological ideas, ecological principles. 
That's interesting. I think uh, I've been I've followed various threads that have to do with this idea of animism of some form or other. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if part of the reason that this appeals to us now is that we're returning in some ways, in different ways, to the idea of the natural world as animate. So, for instance, this fascination that we have with the new science on trees, which show us that trees communicate and do all sorts of things that you know we wouldn't have imagined before makes us look at the natural world in a new way. So this shift that you're talking about from animate to mechanistic, in some ways, I wonder if we're we're not wanting to return (laughs) to a more animate understanding of nature. And that's part of the appeal of a play like this now. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. So from our contemporary perspective, the fairies are kind of stand-ins for the knowledge that we have now, the scientific knowledge, that Shakespeare didn't have access to, but he intuited. He knew from a more traditional idea about the relationship between humans and the non-human world that was animate. And that got lost in the 18th and 19th century. We're now coming back to it. And, And to work kind of backwards from our own period, we now know that we are trees, we are plants, we are animals, because we have genetics now and DNA, knowledge of DNA, to know that all of that is part of us, that humans are not unique, that they're not separate, and their consciousness is not, is not singular in the world compared to everything else, which is just mechanical. That was the Descartian watershed that divided humans categorically from the rest of the non-human world. We're now going back to something closer to Shakespeare's period in which all life forms have common ancestries. This is also the Darwinian uh, revolution as well, that we share kinship with animals, plants, that sort of thing. We all have common ancestries, which are all intermeshed and entangled. And in some ways, the fairies for us now represent a pre-modern way of thinking about those connections. Or at least this goes back to, I think, what we were talking about earlier, that Shakespeare represents these things uh, from his own knowledge viewpoint. He does so in this remarkably powerful poetry. And when we come to the play now in the 21st century, we can read into that a sense that this reflects our own realities, that the fairies are not simply ridiculous little creatures who run around in a cute childlike way. Although they do, and that's why, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream is such, is such a popular play with kids. You know, it's it's Shakespeare's probably best play for children. Uh, but we realize that the fairies, they're kind of uh, fantastic and ridiculous on the one hand, but they're profound in the sense they reflect these uh, entanglements between human nature and other kinds of natures, which now science is proving is is absolutely true. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So another interest of mine is native plants. Mm, And I know more about the plants where I live now, but but if you pay attention to the play, you see that there are lots of specific flowers that indicate that even though Mm. this is officially in Athens, it's really an English wood. Yes. (laughs) So... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's not much that's Greek about this. Uh, <laughs> about this play. There's a whole Greek Aristotelian tradition, which is represented by uh, Theseus and his whole patriarchal male-dominated view of nature. That's very Aristotelian. That's very 
traditional in Western culture, but otherwise. <laughs> and of course, that ends up being rubbished by the play. Well, essentially, the fairy world proves that it's deeply, deeply wrong and mistaken. Right. And that <laughs> so, maybe, the, maybe the fairies are more compelling to an Elizabethan audience by being mm. in a recognizable wood. Yes. They're English entities, you know, just like the mechanicals mm -hmm. are totally English. And so, you know, Athens is a placeholder for, as often in Shakespeare's plays like Italy, is a foreign placeholder that allows a bit of distance from England, from contemporary local culture, uh, to be able to see it in kind of an, an off-center way, an offbeat way even if it's just slightly. So yes, uh, to go back to what you're asking about native plants, the flowers, the plants, which have been thoroughly, thoroughly <laughs> investigated by <laughs> scholars. And, and uh, this was part of Shakespeare's, uh, you know, Shakespeare was celebrated, particularly when he was celebrated as the, the poet of nature by romantic writers in the 19th century. They look to the accuracy of his plant lore uh, and how he got things right, you know, most of the time and then occasionally made a mistake. And that makes him very English on the one hand, but he's saying things that go beyond a kind of local or regional knowledge. He's thinking about wider global things. And if I can, if I can hang on that word for a second, global, it was globalization in the 16th and 17th centuries that was beginning to put pressure on the whole idea of native plants. So this play is filled with mainly native plants, but Shakespeare also refers to, for instance, fireflies. Well, fireflies are not native to Europe, they're North American, but Shakespeare puts them in this play, and they're one of those uh, references in his plays, especially in the 1590s, to new animals, plants, vegetables, coming over from the new world. That included, of course, famously tobacco, although tobacco is never mentioned in Shakespeare, uh, which is interesting just because of its absence. But globalization was beginning to put pressure on the whole idea of native plants, national English plants. And writers in the time spoke about this and were fearful that what we would now call bio-exchanges with the new world as European globalization spread was going to bring invasive species into England, was going to denaturalize um, and compete with um, native English flowers and plants. And of course, that did happen and it continues to happen in our world. So Shakespeare's beginning to, he's, you know, he's touching on this a little bit. The woods is essentially an extraordinarily hybridizing place where species boundaries are crossed. And they're crossed in ways that both represent fears of the kind that I've just been talking about. There are fears, particularly the crossing the human-animal divide. And that, of course, is, is represented comically. You know, Puck uh, puts the love juice into Tanny's eyes. She falls in love with Autumn, who's been transformed at least half into an ass. And we get the whole specter of bestialism and, and bestial sex. And that means producing monsters because essentially we're heading in the direction of genetic engineering there, where DNA is mixing and what are you going to get and that kind of thing. And so the specter of miscegenation in this play is one of the dark fears, hybridization, miscegenation, the fact that the supposedly unique human character and identity is going to be penetrated 
and disrupted and degraded. Do you think that is why at the end of the play, I think it's Oberon who, you know, says how the the couples are going to be sort of live happily ever after, but there's this whole section about how they will have children without any kind of blemish, without hair lips, without, you know, various deformities. Do you think that's linked Mm -hmm. to that threat of, as you said, miscegenation and this sort of hybridity? Yes, absolutely. It's absolutely linked to that. Although, of course, the fairies' role kind of flips a little bit. They're the ones in the woods who have been introducing this. They've been breaking down and dissolving these categorical boundaries, these species boundaries, introducing a whole sense of what Shakespeare knew from Ovid, the classical writer Ovid, and the metamorphosis of humans and animals constantly intermingling and producing hybrid creatures. That was a a Western idea, but one that wasn't part of especially the Judeo-Christian tradition at all, where God creates species and there are single species, they don't mix, and they're in their boundaries, and that's it, and once and for all. And Adam names them and off we go. Whereas Ovid, I might say just parenthetically here, the Midsummer Night's Dream has no real source story or source narrative, but Shakespeare is drawing on a number of different literary sources for some of the writing in the play. And one of them, a lifelong influence on Shakespeare, was Ovid's Metamorphosis. And Ovid is coming from a completely different tradition in the West of materialism in terms of human nature, that creatures are not created by an eternal god or an eternal spirit who imposes forms, this is the Aristotelian idea, imposes or imprints eternal forms on fluctuating matter. Instead, and this is what the fairies bring out, and this is ways, one of the ways in which they're profound and philosophical in some ways, is he's, uh, Ovid links Shakespeare, or Shakespeare links Ovid, to an alternative worldview, a materialist worldview, that it's matter that is eternal, and that it's just constantly changing shapes. And no one's really in control of it. It's a bit like modern physics. And that's a very uh, strong challenge to the dominant Aristotelian Christian, we might call it, worldview. So that hybridization, the fairies represent that through most of the forest. But by, by the end of the play, they flip and they became guardians against it. And sorry, it took me a long time to get to that point, but that's <laughs> what I wanted to know, is they flip over. And there are lots of flips and changes in this place. Of course, I, we talked about Theseus. He's this strong patriarch, not only against, of course, Hermia. You know, you have two choices, obey your father or become a nun, that's it. Or the way in which he brutalizes Titan, uh, uh, his stand-in in the fairies is Oberon, and Oberon brutalizes Titania, and basically Oberon gets his revenge against Titania. They have this tussle over this Indian boy, which is part of Titania's all-female order. And Oberon doesn't like the fact that essentially this boy is going to be, he thinks, effeminized by living in this all-female community, an Amazon community. And he, you know, he, he, he seizes the boy, he abducts the boy, and he humiliates uh, Titania. The gender politics of this play are, from our point of view now, pretty appalling. And it's not clear at the end that Theseus is really very much reformed, although he does make some more enlightened moves, like lifting the restrictions off of Hermia. So things flip around at the end of the play in a very arbitrary way. And one is tempted to say, to put that in a positive term, 
and say it's flexibility. And that flexibility is learnt from the loosening of restrictions that the forest has enabled, the loosing of categorical oppositions and dualisms in the forest. doesn't mean we've got uh, Theseus and Hippolyta as, as nice people at the end. Uh, Hippolyta is the one that seems much more flexible and broad-minded towards, for instance, the stories that the lovers tell. And she says, well, they're all kind of confused and mixed up, but there's something when you put them all together, there's a truth that comes out of those multiple stories. There's something still solid and substantial, even though it all sounds ridiculous, which is kind of our viewpoint in coming to this play. Um, this is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. Uh, it's been echoed by not only Hippolyta, but many critics and, and actors over the years. But there's uh, truths that come out that are more flexible, in process, dynamic. And that's the kind of knowledge we get to, or expanded consciousness that we get to at the end of the play. So, you know, there are many things to say, but I wanted to go back to the the bestiality and the the metamorphosis. Mm. Do you think that Bottom transformed into a donkey? Is that supposed to be frightening in some way? Because there's a way in which it's also just delightful and hilarious. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And modern productions tend to imply that uh, Titania and Bottom do have sex, uh, but you don't have to do that. You know, they're just in the text, all Titania does is stroke his head and say, how lovely you look. And things <laughs> flowers. Like. It becomes a kind of male fantasy of, you know, female, female <laughs> adoration. <laughs> you know? um, but, but there is that darker side. And beginning in, in the 1960s, there was a famous essay written by a Polish critic named Jan Kot called Shakespeare, Our Contemporary. And he sort of pushed this idea that uh, sex is on the table, as it were, and bestiality is a fear that is running through this play. And he was one of a series of critics from that time onward that, that darkened the play, that talked about the fears underlying this play. And those are psychological fears, too. And those were explored by critics and productions in the 1960s and 70s and 80s and onward. You know, in a, in a Freudian way, there's lots of this as a, this play is a Freudian playground, you know, or has become one for several generations. And those darker areas of consciousness, those things that we don't control. Again, going back to that opposition between culture and nature and wilderness, culture is about control of nature. And the forest is a place where that control breaks down, where those kinds of oppositions become dissolved, and it can be liberating, or it can be fearful because suddenly we are not in control. There are larger life forces that are now in control, and this is where we connect to our now fears of DNA, for instance, that and, and we've gone back to a nature-nurture debate. You know, are we really just completely controlled by our genes? And we have very little say over our lives. In other words, is, is free will now, human free will now being shrunken to, you know, relatively minor environmental and individual choices? We're having that debate again with genetic engineering, with all of these scientific technological advances. And so the play is very much, it's very contemporary in that way. And represents, as I said, both um, both these sort of dark fears, but also opportunities for shifting our worldview, for seeing that human nature is not exceptional, not uh, always in control, 
as we are realizing to our regret when the Anthropocene, we've created these monstrous climate conditions, for instance, that are coming back to bite us, and that we better rapidly learn to recognize our kinship with animals and the fact that we're not completely in control of the forces of nature to begin to mitigate the damage that we've done and to set ourselves on a new path. And to some extent, that's the opportunity, I think, of a Midsummer Night's Dream from a modern contemporary viewpoint. And Shakespeare captures this in the play in many ways, but one of the uh, small but significant ways is his use of the word glimmering, which he talks about in the forest. It's a word that doesn't appear anywhere else in Shakespeare's work, he talks about glimmerings in the forests, uh, in the forest, or what we might call will-o'-the-wisps, you know, false fires, that sort of thing. And that culminates dramatically in Bottom's vision. You know, the ass head is taken off at the end of Act 4, Scene 1, and he has this speech um, where he's all discombobulated. Uh, he's having this synesthetic moment where he's uh, mixing up his senses, that sort of thing. He's just had this huge insight into an expanded environmentally oriented uh, human consciousness, but he can't quite grasp it, of course. He can't put it into words. And Shakespeare offers this burlesque moment because Bottom says, well, he's going to turn it into a ballad. And uh, in the Elizabethan period, ballads were typically tall tales, outrageous stories. They represent, you know, supermarket tabloid stuff, you know, you know, where is Elvis and all of this sort of stuff. So uh, it's all of Shakespeare's uh, burlesque of that condition, but it's also, again, something profound. He's gone through an experience, a phenomenological experience that it has given him a sense that human nature is much, much more than the traditional, rather narrow, Western tradition that people like uh, Theseus represents. This is where he says, we'll call it bottom's dream because it has no bottom. It has no bottom. Right, right. And that means either it's ridiculous or it's profound in a mysterious way that bears Serious yeah, thinking. So interesting. So let's talk a little bit about some of the associations with the forest. You talked at one point about how this was a Freudian playground. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. Um, the forest is associated with the night time. It's associated with mm -hmm. dreams. It's associated with the imagination. It's associated with madness at a certain point. There's a line. Oh, it's Demetrius says, thou toldst me they were stolen unto this wood and here I am and wood within this wood. And my understanding is that that first use of the word wood touches on madness. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like our uh, our word for crazy. You know, okay. if, you, if you're wood, you're, you're crazy. And that's a that's a usage that goes back to, uh, it's very common in Chaucer, for instance. It's, uh, it's an old English usage. So what do we make of Shakespeare's choice to associate the forest with, let's start with night and dreams, this sort of dream space. Yes. Mm -hmm. The night in A Midsummer Night's Dream is associated, of course, with not only an opposition between light and darkness, which is fundamental to Western ways of thinking about value. Light is associated with positive things. Night is associated, of course, with mysterious forces that we cannot control and therefore with values that are negative, especially in terms of human nature and human culture. But also, I think we can expand that to saying that night is has been gendered in the Western tradition. Daytime, because in the Western tradition, our gods, our sky gods, 
and they are not earth gods, generally speaking. The powerful ones in Greek tradition and classical tradition are sky gods. And of course, the Judeo-Christian god is another sky god. So here I'm talking in kind of slightly anthropological terms. And those are the dominant gods, and they are gendered male. Whereas the night is associated with nature and with earth mother gods. So night is a gendered term, and it's been typically valued in a subordinate way. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, it's a play that we go back to that sense that Shakespeare's poetry is such that you could perform this play in broad daylight and still get a very strong imaginative sense of it being nighttime. That partly is due to the fact that Shakespeare describes moonshine, <laughs> in many different ways. The moon is shining on this uh, solstice night in, in 1595, shall we say. And the moon is the dominant physical element, as well as the forest, in this play. And it's associated poetically and in literary terms with the goddess Diana, the classical goddess Diana. But Shakespeare is also doing something interesting in this play with that association. And it's going back again to this foil between culture and nature and the city or civilization and the, and the forests. He's thinking about Diana in two different ways. And that's because there were two different traditions, classical traditions of the deity Diana. There is the one we're most familiar with and the one that appears most often in Shakespeare's play, and that's Diana, the goddess of chastity, associated with the moon, associated with the forest. She's a virgin huntress of the forest, and she lives in the forest to preserve her chastity. She's associated with Amazons, with all-female warrior communities, and so Hippolyta is one of those figures. And that's one tradition of Diana, and it's the one that's associated with Theseus's attempt to say to Hermia, you either marry the guy of your father's choice, or you'll live a nun. You'll live kind of like, you know, a Diana of a convent. But then there's another older and deeper uh, association of Diana, and that's Diana from not the Roman tradition, which is the Diana, the chaste Diana, but the Greek tradition. So here we go a little bit back to the Athenian thing that is there, you know, in the background. And that Diana is the god in Greek called Artemis. And Artemis was uh, a deity of the forest, and she was a very, very different kind of figure. She wasn't the goddess of chastity. She was the goddess of fertility a fertility goddess. And there, there were equivalent local representations of her all across the Mediterranean world from basically beginnings of recorded history well into the Hellenistic period, the first few centuries of the what used to be called AD, common era now. So she's the goddess of fertility, childbirth, wild animals, and of the forest. And in that guise, she's a much more powerful entity because she represents these, in human terms, uncontrollable, unmasterable life forces of the forest and of nature generally. And so we go back to this uh, sense that what Shakespeare is troping through this Diana, the Diana of the forest as Artemis, is these 
underlying connections between human nature and animal nature, plant nature, the fact that they're all entirely entangled. And we are just one part of that and a part that uh, is subjected to that largely. It's not entirely in our control. And that, Diana, that moon, as it were, is the moon that takes over the play, we might say, or is forthcoming in the play. Right at the beginning of the play, Theseus says, oh, gosh, we've got to wait four days. This old moon is waning. In other words, it's a little sliver in the sky. And kind of visually, we think, oh, you know, that's Diana in the Roman guise of being the goddess of the virgin goddess of chastity in the forest. But the new moon represents the new beginning. It's a dark moon, and it's the moon of mystery, of the forest, of fertility, where the usual categorical distinctions are not observed, where we've got this just material universe, where things are in constant flux and flow, and they produce different creatures, different life forms, and it's that fecundity of nature in the most profound way that is also being represented by that other moon that's coming, (laughs) Um, and that gradually gets absorbed, because finally by the end of the play, as it were, we've got to that new moon. It's now Theseus and Hippolyta's wedding night, but now is going to be kind of absorbed within civilization as well, or, you know, worked into the cultural rituals of marriage, of uh, the wedding night, that sort of thing. And we get a, you know, we, we begin to get those two coming together as well. But it's that new moon, it's that Artemisian moon, we might say, to put it in symbolic terms, that the forest represents in, in the middle of the play. So I have a couple of questions. Um, one is, do you think that Titania stands in for that Diana as Artemis. And mm-hmm. my other question is a bit a bit of a detour, which is I wonder how Queen Elizabeth figures into this since we're talking about gender. In preparation for this interview, I learned more about Queen Elizabeth and found her absolutely fascinating. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Those are good questions. Titania is another Amazon figure like Hippolyta, uh, just the way that Theseus and Oberon crossover and they're often played by the same actors, Hippolyta and Titania, crossover. Uh, and she's an Amazon, uh, not only in being a kind of warrior queen in the, in the forest with her own community and her own culture, symbolized by her association with this Indian boy. And she's Amazonian as well in the negative common sense of the term that she confronts Oberon and opposes Oberon and opposes his authority. So there's that. As far as Elizabeth goes, this is a more interesting and not as clear-cut association because Elizabeth was, of course, she was the Virgin Queen. The literary imagery surrounding her called her Cynthia, which is one of the uh, terms for Diana, the Virgin Huntress of the Forest. So that kind of imagery, along with the hunting imagery, the moon imagery, that sort of thing, that was all associated associated with Queen Elizabeth. That connects with the uh, folkloric power of virginity, that it represents a kind of power in reserve that hasn't been contaminated, and that is uh, represents a source of um, not just physical strength, but moral strength as well, and or in Elizabeth's case, political strength against the ordinary male monarchs of the uh, rest of Western Europe. But 
obviously, clearly, it's complicated in this play by what I've just been talking about, that there are two Dianas in this play. There's a Roman one, a Greek one. The Greek one is this more profound forest-like and much more hybridizing life force. And how that applies to Elizabeth, well, I'd say largely it doesn't. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. there, was a, there was a tradition, another tradition that said Queen Elizabeth was an Amazon queen. And that's particularly when it was in the context of politics and religion. And she was the militant Protestant mm-hmm. queen who was leading England as the chief country of emerging Protestant Europe and battling against the evil Catholic powers of Europe. In thinking of gender in Shakespeare's plays, I feel like Elizabeth must have loomed so large. But one one little detail, I noticed that early on, there are a couple of times when they talk about Hermia and Helena having played in the wood mm. in what seems like probably a, a pre-adolescent stage, mm. you know, sort of before mm. men and marriage interfered in their friendship. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. That's an interesting note in terms of what the force is associated with here. This mm-hmm. play space that's associated with with girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and in a gendered way, if we can put it from that. Before the intervention of, as it were, uh, or it seems from the little description uh, that Helena gives, before the introduction of male authority and male culture, as it were, you could almost put in in those kinds of uh, psychoanalytic terms. I would also note that the dominant metaphor she uses is she uses this extraordinary image of the double cherry, you know, a fruit that is both double and singular at the same time. And that's a beautiful image for exactly what the forest does and this alternative to the masculine world of categorical distinctions, strict boundaries, and strict hierarchies between masculine and feminine. And of course, Elizabeth, throughout her career, upset those kinds of things, because first of all, she was, you know, she was a female head of state, and many men resented that throughout her entire career, uh, her entire reign, I should say. (laughs) It was a career. What do you make of the fact that the fairies get the last say? So we tie everything up at the court. The lovers will be united with the ones that they wanted, more or less. <laughs> um, then the fairies come in, and they get the final word. Here is the speech with which Puck ends the play. If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck a liar call, so good night unto you all. Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. So, but, But what particularly interests me here is given that we have these two worlds that have mingled and separated again, that it is the fairies that get the last word. Well, they're the stars of the show, really. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> and so in this final speech, which is a traditional speech inviting applause and approval from the audience, uh, the star of the show comes out, and that's Buck. That's Robin Goodfellow, probably played by Will Kemp, who is the leading comic actor of Shakespeare's day, he probably paid Puck. So he's popular, he comes out and says, approve the play, 
uh, give us applause. And uh, that's how we'll uh, go out back into the real world with this sense of perhaps a different consciousness about our place in the world. That is the human place in this world in, in relationship to the larger forces of nature and everything that we've been talking about. It makes a lot of dramatic sense uh, and theatrical sense to end the play with them rather than we don't really want to hear a final speech by Jesus. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next time, the role of trees and forests in Toni Morrison's Beloved. If you have a favorite forest of fiction you'd like to share with me, send me an email to askwith.intheweeds at gmail.com or a tweet at intheweedspod. If you have a moment, please give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and tell a friend to subscribe as well. Thank you. Thank you.